Please turn with me in your Bibles for what might be the final time in quite a while to the letter written by Peter that we call 1 Peter. If you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 955, 1 Peter chapter 5, and in just a moment I'll read verses 6 to the end of the chapter. There's a well-known Christian hymn. And I wonder if you've ever heard the song. It goes like this. Blessed assurance. It's actually the title of it. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. And then the refrain, the chorus says, this is my, do you know it? Story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is probably one of Fanny Crosby's most well-known hymns, but it's only one of what was thousands of songs that she would have written in her lifetime. The estimates range anywhere between 6,000 to 9,000 hymns written by Fanny Crosby. She lives to be 92 years old. If we take the higher estimates of roughly 9,000 hymns as the accurate estimate, this would mean on average, every year of her life, she wrote 100 hymns. If that were not impressive enough, I should throw in there that at the age of 10, by encouragement of her grandmother, she started memorizing five chapters of scripture each Week by the age of 15, she had half of the Bible memorized. By the end of this sermon, my prayer for us is that we will see the power of God's grace in the midst of suffering like Fanny Crosby saw it. By the end of this sermon, my prayer for you, for us, is that we would see the power of grace in the midst of suffering, like Fanny Crosby. More on her suffering at the conclusion of this sermon. For now, let's conclude 1 Peter as I read verses 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And thus ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, and perhaps I might add, gracious. That ends our reading of 1 Peter over the last several months. A gracious word. A word of grace, Peter says. And my prayer is that he will help us see. And I use that verb intentionally. See. Grace. Like Fanny Crosby saw it, even in the midst of suffering. That's my hope and prayer. Here's your sentence summary of this passage of scripture that might even be true for the entire book of 1 Peter to a degree. In one sentence, this passage that I just read for you can be summarized by saying the God of all grace wants to give his true grace to you. The God of all grace wants to give his grace to you. The question is, will you humbly receive it? The reality of what this text is communicating is that God is in the business of having and dispensing and wanting to give grace. The prerequisite for you to receive it is humility. Will you have the humility to receive the grace of God? What I want to do in this sermon is actually start at the end and work our way backwards. So we'll begin with verses 12 to 14. We will move upward in the passage and conclude with verses 5 and 6. And to briefly explain why we want to do this, it is because Peter in verse 11 or 12 and 13 says that he has written briefly. This letter is a brief letter. It's five chapters. It's not too long. Briefly exhorting, which means commanding, encouraging, and then declaring truths. And if you were to summarize the entire letter that Peter has written, he says it this way. This letter, this brief letter of exhortation and declaration is grace. True grace. So, Stand firm in it. The God of all grace wants to give his true grace to you if you'd be humble enough to receive it. So, the outline will go like this. You live in Babylon. You need grace for enduring exile. Section 1 will be 12 to 14. You need grace to endure exile. We live in Babylon. So in order to endure the trials of this world, you need grace. You need true grace. Second, we'll move upward and we will look in the next immediate section, verses 8 to 10. And I will encourage you to realize your need for grace. So humbly receive grace in order to resist the devil. Point one, the world. Point two, 
the devil. Point three, verses five to seven, you need grace for your anxiety, your sinful flesh that anxiously worries instead of trusting in the care of the Lord. Have you ever heard that the opposition to your faith could be summarized with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Think of it like this. There's a blender of three different ingredients, and the Bible just kind of blends them all together. I'm parsing them out for you, but just realize that as the biblical authors write to you, they just assume these three realities. There is opposition in a little triangle-like picture. The world, other people in the world, spiritual invisible powers that you can't see, and your own heart, the own, your own sinful flesh. That triad is our opposition to faith. And the way to conquer these enemies is God's grace. Humbly receiving his grace for enduring exile, resisting the devil, and battling our anxious flesh. You guys ready? Shall we work through them one at a time? First, verses 12 to 14. It's the final greeting section, and it might be easy to pass over, but man, the two gems that we must pay attention to are the one in verse 13 where he says she who is at Babylon just as a quick little historical note the Roman Empire has been in charge for quite some time Rome Caesar not Nebuchadnezzar Babylon who's Babylon and this just requires you to know a little bit of world history and your Bible Babylon is the place where Jewish men and women were deported and exiled. So, flip your Bible to chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersia in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He is writing to a group of people that are spread out all over this Asia Minor area of the first century. And here at the end, as a kind of bookend to how we started, exile, Babylon. Do you see it? It makes it pretty explicit. And so what you should understand here is that he's talking about a church that's more than likely in Rome. And that he is saying there are Christians. The she here is most likely, I think, a singular reference to a group of people that are Christians. So she, the church of Jesus Christ, who is in Rome, Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Which alerts us to the problem. The problem that he's been talking about through the entire letter, the what problem he stated in the very first verse. Exile is a problem. Displacement. Being taken from your home. Not feeling ever truly at home. Constant pressures to compromise being encouraged to bow down to the false gods, or in this case, the emperor who calls himself the savior of the world, the son of God, and his coin stamped on every payment that you make in that society is reminding you he believes he is Lord, not Jesus Christ. The world is intelligently, persistently going after the one true God and his true grace from heaven. 
opposed to it, wanting you to follow in their ways, tearing down and destroying your places of worship, whether that is in the Old Testament times, your temple, or in the New Testament times, your people, the church of Jesus Christ being maligned, martyred. Babylon is corrupt, egotistical, power-hungry political leaders. Have times changed, brothers and sisters? Is it fair for us to apply yet again in this sermon series that we, in America, live in Babylon? Or is that not patriotic on July 4th weekend? Serious question. Should we change the sermon, the Sunday service, and start singing God bless America, American flags everywhere, you name it? I think it's very important for you to realize that I am for patriotism, and I believe that most of our members and elders would as well. Enjoy your 4th of July celebrations, but do not be deceived into some kind of Christian nationalism or some kind of blind allegiance to a political party or state that does not submit to King Jesus. This is extremely important for us to realize that we in America, as much as we love so many things about America, please be appreciative of our soldiers. Be prayerful for them. Be thankful for your freedoms to worship right now. You have rights that most Christians have never had. This is worth rejoicing in, thanking God for, and celebrating on Tuesday or the whole week if you'd like. That is different from us marching and trumpeting to a certain American-specific agenda that subverts or distorts the message of the gospel. They're not the same. And it is extremely important to realize your allegiance as a Christian is supremely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we call ourselves Embassy Church because we understand ourselves to be foreigners, even in America. And on this 4th of July weekend, I would encourage you not to give in to any temptations toward nationalism. But patriotism is extremely appropriate. And by those two terms, I just mean That there is increasing rhetoric that Christians should stand up for the causes of America with kind of blind allegiance, pick a political party, and go all in regardless of what that may mean about your faith. And this, my friends, I don't think is acceptable for us if we're going to be faithful to our calling. Or as Peter puts, look at verse 12. Stand firm in the true grace of God that only comes from the God who is in heaven And therefore, we commit ourselves to weekly Sunday gatherings to remind and reorient and celebrate true grace. From heaven to earth as we live as foreigner exiles in this world. Let's remember that there is grace from heaven and it is true. And we need it. We need it especially in these days and times when the persecutions And the loyalties of this world will increasingly encourage you to succumb to pressures that would ask you to disobey God. Scripture or be faithful to the gospel. Second, you need grace, not just to live in this world as an American citizen, 
as the world around us is very Babylon-like. Secondly, humbly receive grace to resist the devil. Look at verses 8 to 10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace wants to give you grace. Will you humbly receive it in order to resist the devil? Perhaps before you even answer the question, you need to ask yourself, are you humble enough to admit that there's a devil? Do you believe in that triad of factors? There's the world. There's your own sinful flesh. Got that. Experienced that. I know what you're talking about. Now we're going to talk about the devil. That might seem a bit odd or strange for some of you that are saturated in the world. That's why he says, be sober-minded. If you saturate yourself with alcohol, your faculties in your brain will not function appropriately, which is why it's illegal in almost all places around the world to operate heavy machinery or drive a vehicle while intoxicated. In just the same way, it is dangerous to live in this world and be intoxicated with the world's idea that there's just what you can see. The powers at play are only the things that are visible, your own sinful flesh and the world around you. This text takes the invisible realities of the spiritual darkness and forces of this world head on and just assumes it, like I mentioned earlier, like a blender. It's it's not even trying to make arguments for the devil. It's just stating, resist him. But here in the 21st century, I believe some of you are struggling with this very idea. Or as the great introduction to Screwtape's letters, C.S. Lewis said, typically, those of us in this room, we're either hyper-spiritual, where we see the devil around every little corner, and we blame him for everything, hyper-devil sensitivity, or we are not superstitious enough in the best sense of that word. We do not see a spiritually charged, invisible world that affects us. Therefore, we are not humbly submitting to God's word and humbly receiving the grace needed. We're just going through the motions. The, div the devil can be resisted. The commandment here is grace. The God of all grace will do what? Did you see that repetition of command, statement? The God of all grace. This is like a prophecy. It's a, a prediction. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, through being united in Jesus Christ, you will be restored you will be confirmed, you will be strengthened, and you will be established. I think all four of these words are basically him saying the same thing four different ways. You need strength. 
in order to resist the fear of your adversary, the devil. And notice that he is compared to a lion, a roaring lion. I don't know the best way to make sense of this picture or image, but it seems to me like you should understand this to be the opposite of the first presentation of the devil in the Bible, which is a serpent. He's crafty. He's a liar. He's sneaky, subtle. I think that's a very important point to make, but that's not Peter's point here. What does a lion do when he's roaring? Why? does he roar? To strike fear. If he's trying to devour, you would think that he would be subtle, crafty, serpent-like. Clearly, what's going on here, if you just connect the dots, roaring lion, devouring faith, stand firm, resist in your faith based on suffering. In other words, Suffering experienced in the physical body, in the real world, is not just suffering. It's spiritual powers at work that manifest themselves in a visible way. Let me say that one more time in case any of you modern, skeptical listeners aren't getting the idea. There's an invisible spiritual reality. The devil, your adversary. He wants to scare you by making you anxious, which we'll talk about in just a moment, so that your faith wavers as you look at suffering in this world, real, physical, visible, tangible things that happen in your life. In other words, I don't think your idea should be, okay, sometimes there's physical sufferings and things that are happening in my real world, and then there's these just weird, mystical, magical, spiritual things. And then now i got to be afraid of those too. He's, he's lumping them together. The physical sufferings, the maligning, the insulting, all the sufferings he's been talking about in First Peter, he's not been hyper-spiritual about. He's just been talking about it like you and I would talk about facing trials in our world. But here, at the very end of his letter, he shows his hand. He believes that all of that suffering, suffering for a little while, is empowered by dark spiritual forces. So Babylon, go back to point one, the world isn't just one category, it's blended together. There is a worldly system that is intelligently being led by demonic evil forces. So when you see America or any other country or any politician or any world power, the Roman emperor, Nebuchadnezzar of King Babylon, all of them have visible manifestations of darkness. And in this way, you need to realize that the choice is not between physical versus spiritual, but rather understanding the holistic big picture of the opposition that you face. So humble yourself. 21st century, 2023 people, humble yourself and admit that the world is way more complex than the biology teacher wants to tell you. There is so much more going on than just the flat materialistic explanations that can be given in our universities. The Bible's help by telling you that there is something invisible that is pushing agendas behind the agendas that you visibly see. And that causes pain, suffering, difficulty, trial. And it will need to be intentionally resisted. It will require humility. 
to submit yourself to the scripture's way of understanding it and reject some of the worldly ways of thinking. And I think you will see it as a grace, a grace that's coming from heaven, the God of all grace, who intends through the instruction of his word and intends through you submitting yourself to him to be confirmed, to be called, to be strengthened, even against the most fearful attacks of the enemy. So be sober-minded, be watchful, humble yourself, and receive the grace that's needed to resist the devil. He promises it. This isn't a maybe. I will do this. Didn't you love what David read for us just a moment ago? James chapter 4. Resist the devil and he will do what? He will flee from you. The devil is described as a lion. But be very, very careful in your reading. He's like a lion. The devil is like a lion. The emphasis here should be on the word like. He's like a lion because he's a counterfeit of your Savior Jesus Christ who is the lion, the one who comes in the tribe of Judah, the one who is the lion and the lamb, who has been sacrificed and receives all worship and all praise and all dominion in heaven right now as we speak, interceding for us. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's like a lion. But stand firm in your commitment and faith that we have a lion, Jesus Christ, interceding for us. There's grace in heaven coming down from heaven through the spirit, through the gospel of Jesus. Would you receive it? He wants to give it to you. The prerequisite is to feel your need for it. Which brings us to our third and final point. I know that so far talking about the world and the devil doesn't hit quite close to home, so now hopefully you're understanding why I thought it would be helpful to put the entire sermon together by understanding your individual personal anxieties. Receive the grace that he wants to give for your anxious heart. Humbly receive the grace he wants to give for your anxious heart. Let's start with verse 5. Because I think you'll see the explicit reference to the idea that God wants to give grace. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore... Because God wants to give grace to humble people, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. To make sense of what's going on in this passage, I want to teach you a very simple idea that I have said many times from this pulpit, and it's that the Bible's message, the gospel, has two parts. It is bad news that is far worse than what most of you are thinking. But the good news is way better than your wildest imagination. For example, anxiety. Anxiety is bad news. 
How many of you appreciate having a heart racing and not being able to fall asleep for days, weeks? Needing to be on medication. Anxiety is plaguing our youth, plaguing our adults. The statistics themselves, they're obvious. We are an anxious people. In the church, outside of the church, anxiety is a problem. Anxiety is not our biggest problem. It's not comforting to hear this at first, but if you would like to potentially uproot anxiety from its source, humbly be willing to receive a harsh word that your anxiety is only a symptom and your pride is the problem. Where do I get that idea? God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, follow the logic closely, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And then this is the important link that you may not see on the surface. The word casting is not a new idea. It is attached to the previous verb, humble yourself. God opposes proud people but he gives. He generously wants to give grace to humble people. So therefore, humble yourselves. How? How do I do it? Practically, we're talking about the devil and the world and all kinds of things. What about just today? What do I need to do, Pastor Phil? Humble yourself by casting your anxieties on the Lord in prayer. Give over your anxiety to the Lord. The relationship between verses 6 and 7 is where I get this idea that your deepest root problem for anxiety is not anxiety. It's pride. The unwillingness to submit yourself to God and cast upon him all of your anxious thoughts, fears, worries. And this pride manifests itself pastorally. This is my observation. Two ways. First, some of you don't pray. You're anxious, and your pride is very obvious. You're not praying. Most likely because you don't believe God cares. Notice, at least in Peter's instance, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares. If you knew he cared... He was willing to give grace. He wants to give grace. And that he has grace ready, well then ask for it. That's why that James 4 passage, again, is so helpful. Some of you haven't received because you just haven't asked. You've gone to the doctor and asked for medication. You've gone to a friend and asked for help. You've never asked God. That's one form of pride. Your prayerlessness is pride and the anxiety is a symptom. Second, there is an inferiority kind of pride. If the first one is kind of a smug superiority, I don't need God's help. And so therefore, I'm not going to ask. Stiff arm to grace. Heaven, don't need your help. How about the inferiority kind of pride? He can't help me. I've messed up too much. My sin's too great. I'm a helpless cause. I'm just going to be this way forever. The God of all grace wants to give his true grace and it is potent. It is powerful. 
It is way beyond your wildest dreams. Do you remember the, the simple sentence I told you? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible. Or Peter, for that matter. The bad news is far worse. Your sinful heart's proud. There's an adversary, the devil, roaring around like a lion, seeking fear to increase your anxiety so that you don't turn to God by faith and prayer. And he is influencing Babylon, the world. Like the problem's far worse than what most of us probably came into the room thinking. If you come and sit down in the, the pastoral doctor's office and say, Pastor Phil, I need a diagnosis. I have anxiety. What I'm trying to help you see is that's only the external manifestation of the deeper sinful heart that is stiff-arming grace. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in order to receive the grace needed in your time of need. He will come and help you. He cares for you. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. And most likely that's a reference to end time salvation, resurrection from the dead, you and I being victoriously vindicated with Christ, not necessarily like, well, I prayed, and then the next week I'm hoping to be exalted. Anxiety about work, the next week I should get promoted, right? Anxiety about finances, the next week I should get a big check that just randomly dropped in my mailbox. Sometimes that happens, but that's not Peter's point. At the proper time, trusting in him, in his grace, he will exalt you. So, I would encourage each of you, this is not a simple sermon to preach because I know from experience the hundreds if not thousands of nuances for each of your cases. But the point is to publicly and corporately declare to you that Peter's logic here is that it is pride that doesn't lead us to humble ourselves before the God and ask for the grace that he wants to give for our deep, anxious thoughts. He cares for you. Doesn't this sound like the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow has so much for it to worry about for itself. Look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the air, how much does he care for them? Do you see the logic? Anxiety, care. I think Peter sat under Master Jesus and heard that sermon a hundred times or more. And he, in these few little words, is downloading those theological concepts. So if you'd like to just sit in this idea that if I would humble myself, and turn to the Lord in prayer, and trust in him for tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough worry for itself. He cares for me. He knows every hair on my head. Why does the Bible tell us that? Why did Jesus want to tell you that he knows every hair on your head? Because he's counting all the time? It's because you don't know every hair on your head. Do you know every cell in your body? Are any of them cancerous? Do you know? Like right now, can you just do a little quick scan? Cancer-free? No. You don't know. You don't know every cell in your body, every hair on your head, every grand of s sand on the seashore. He knows all of them. He knows every star in the sky. We haven't even counted all of them yet. The Bible wants to turn your attention to the mighty power of God, his, his knowledge, his wisdom, his infinite otherness, holiness. 
so that you would know that that force of power doesn't just exist, but it cares intimately for your situation right now. The word grace, it's a big theme of this sermon, correct? A good, simple, easy definition of grace is gift. Charis is the Greek word, and it just means a gift. And some of us are failing to believe in God's care for us after he has graciously, generously given us the most precious gift we need in his son, Jesus Christ. Think about the logic here. The mighty ruler of the universe, deserving nothing, needing no one, has been awfully sinned against by countless human beings, but in his kindness and grace and mercy, he sent forth his son in the world to give us an example, but more importantly, a substitute, a man who would take our place and die on the cross for our sins, to take away not just the penalty of anxiety, but the power and presence of anxiety in your heart. He died for that purpose, so that you would have just utter confidence that he is for you, not against you, as Romans 8 says. And if he did not spare his son, how will he not graciously give you all that you need for tomorrow? As the former pastor Tim Keller so eloquently put, he gave you the present. Why are you worried about the wrapping paper? The real thing you need is salvation in Jesus Christ through his atoning death on the cross. Has he done that already? He has. Will he then strengthen, confirm, establish, and pour out the grace you need to fight the sin in your heart? The Satan in the world. Absolutely he will. But it is pride that looks up into heaven and says, nope. Because he didn't do it the way I liked it. He didn't do it the way I wanted it. And so we shake our fists at God instead of realizing that we should as verse 6 commands, it's not a suggestion, it's a command, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. Where have we heard this phrase before if we're Bible readers? The mighty hand of God. Well, the first time it appears is Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless you are compelled by a mighty hand. First time, a mighty hand appears. What's it referring to? God's people entrapped in slavery, and there is a demonic human ruler that is oppressing the people of God, and they are suffering for quite a while, a little while, like Peter says. They need a mighty hand. So in Exodus chapter 32, the next time this phrase appears, O Lord, you brought us out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Do you have any anxieties about your work? If you were to read the Old Testament carefully, you would see that one of the ways that you would trust and cast all of your cares upon God is to commit to a Sabbath day where you take a day off of work. Consider, for example, Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are given. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. Did you know that? 
The mighty hand of God saved you, therefore, take a day off and trust in his grace. Rely upon his saving grace and power. That's why you have a lazy day once a week. Do you have any anxiety about your children and whether or not you have all the right answers about how to disciple them and raise them? Anybody? Perhaps? Anxiety about children? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 21 says, When your sons ask you in the time to come, what, what is the meaning of all this? By the way, that's a filth paraphrase, but it's all this instruction that parents are supposed to give their children. And then at the end of it, he's like, and then some of your kids are going to be like, Dad, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And this is how you're supposed to respond. Then you shall say to your son, we were once Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Answer, parents, very practically, kids are going to come. Point them to the character and sufficiency of the power of God, the trustworthiness of his word. Sometimes you won't have all the answers, but you can say, son, we trust in God because he has a mighty hand. At least that's what Deuteronomy says for parents to do. Do any of you have anxiety about whether or not God really loves you? Or as I heard one pastor say recently, we hear the word God loves you all the time. How about, do you think God likes you? Like he'd want to sit down and hang out with you. To be a friend, Lord, Master, Savior, all of that. But like he loves you and he likes you. Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever have anxious thoughts? Like am I really saved? Would he really love me? The next time the mighty hand phrase, by the way, if you weren't catching my gist, I'm just reading you all the times mighty hand appears in Deuteronomy. Here's the next one. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And out of all of the peoples that were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than all the other peoples that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For in fact, you out of all the peoples were the fewest. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Guys, this is one of the glorious verses in all the Bible. Fanny Crosby memorized it by 15. You should memorize it before the end of the week. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 9. Do you have anxiety about whether or not God really loves you or likes you? Answer. He, with his mighty hand, saved you. And he did so not because you were great. He did so because he loved you. What kind of logic is that? He loved me because he loved me? Exactly. That is the best answer for all answers about why do you love me? Because I love you. Anytime you give any other answer, husbands, this is a freebie for you, by the way. Honey, why do you love me? Is it because of my good looks? Is it because of my sweet charm and my funny sense of personality? The answer should be because I love you, sweetheart. I love you because I love you. That's how God answers the question. Otherwise, then you might love physical beauty. But is your wife really summarized with her physical beauty? And how long will that last? Especially in this fallen world. If you have anxiety about whether God really loves you, read his word and know that with a mighty hand, he saved his people because he loves those people. And he loved them because he loved them. Do you have anxiety about war or threats to your physical safety? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, the nations, they're not greater than me. Why are you afraid of them? 
You shall remember that the Lord your God, what he did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt, you saw with your own eyes the signs and wonders, and you saw his mighty hand. Fear about war, the threat of World War III. It's a legitimate anxiety. Turn to God and trust in his powerful, mighty right hand. Friends, we could go on. I have a list of several more, but here's the point. Repeatedly, there is a phrase in the Old Testament, and when it is used, it is used to talk about God's salvation of God's people out of slavery from Egypt. 1 Peter chapter 5 is the only time in the New Testament where this phrase is used. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. I don't think this is a guess. I think this is certain confidence. Peter wants you to think that you should humble yourselves under God because of God's power to save over satanic powers and worldly forces, even big bad Egypt or Babylon or Rome or you name it. Trust in his power and his love and his care to save. And if you haven't connected the dots, realize that Jesus Christ went to the cross saying, I will perform the great fulfillment of the Exodus story. I will save God's people out of not slavery from Egypt, but slavery from sin. And I would add the sin of anxiety. Or maybe we should say the sin of pride. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he cares for you. And if you need an encouragement, just like Peter says, look at the brothers around the world. Look at verse 9. Throughout the world, there are Christians that have experienced all kinds of trials and temptations. They're experiencing the same kinds of sufferings you are throughout the world, throughout Christian history. We have example after example. So let's conclude with Fanny Crosby. 9,000 hymns, 100 hymns a year, half the Bible memorized by age 15. Impressive. When she was six months old, she had an infection in her eye. Her autobiography explains that as far as she could tell, based on the reports from her family, friends, she was a visible seeing child. A quack of a doctor, a traveling, money-making jerk came in and put some kind of mustard ointment that said would heal the infection, but instead singed her eyeballs and made her permanently blind for all 92 years of her life. Is it even more impressive that she wrote 9,000 hymns over the course of 92 years blind? and listened to people read the scriptures to her and memorized it by the age of 15. And in her autobiography, she writes, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind my entire life, but I want to now thank him for this dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were to be offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I know I would not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by all of the beautiful and interesting things about me. All of the beautiful and interesting things about me, she says. I would have been so distracted with myself that I wouldn't have been singing about my Savior. 
she thanks God for her blindness. Isn't it amazing how powerful God's grace is when in the midst of trials, God takes broken, awful tragedies? Never once in her autobiography does she blame that quack of a doctor or get upset with her parents. She makes numerous statements throughout her life about how she is so glad that God has limited her in these ways. She has accepted humility. Humble yourself is a kind of acceptance. God, this is your providence for me. And I know in the proper time I'll be exalted. And I'll put my hope and my faith in you. So in case you have forgotten, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, was written by a blind woman. And the rest of the song goes like this. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Raptures of visions are burst in my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and am blessed. I am watching, I am waiting, I am looking above. I am filled with his goodness and I am lost in his love. Looking, waiting, visions. My prayer is that you would see the power of God's grace in the midst of deep painful suffering, even when that suffering for a little while lasts 92 years. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we bow before you humbly. And collectively, with our words, with our, our minds, with our hearts, we would like to express the deep gratitude we have for you sending your son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and save sinners like us, anxious, worried, proud sinners. Father, it is not pleasant to be told that you're not just anxious, but you're proud, but we pray that this stern rebuke would lead us to savoring the glory that is ours, the grace that is found in this humbling admission of sin and guilt. I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves, that we would believe by faith in your mighty hand and we would put our hope in Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray for encouragement, strengthening, comforting. We do believe you've promised these things, and it's on the basis of these promises in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we declare now, come through on your promises. Deliver us from all of the things we've discussed. A sinful, anxious heart. Deliver us from the schemes of the devil, whether subtly or roaring like a lion. And deliver us from the temptations to conform to the pattern of this world but rather let us be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we submit ourselves to your true grace and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.